Right, so there's two strands. Firstly, they're both written in very different ways, the story. So one's in you know, different tenses, different um, points of view, because they are two different stories and they're needed telling differently. But also because that question of authorship, but who is actually telling this tale of, of Meher, this, this historical story, which what, you know, what right does the person have to actually put words into the mouth of someone who really existed and who and who has no right of reply and one of the ways I tried to answer that question for myself was was making that question of authorship quite central to the form of the book Hello and thanks for tuning in to the Vintage Books podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Head of Literature and Spoken Word at Southbank Centre, and I'm delighted to be moonlighting as your host for this episode, featuring Sanjeev Sahota and Kamala Shamsi. Our conversation is occasioned by Sanjeev Sahota's third novel, China Room, recently longlisted for the Booker Prize. It follows his incisive debut, Ours of the Streets, and his urgent second novel, charting the precarious fates of migrant workers in Sheffield, the year of the runaways. Kamala Shamsi is the author of seven novels, most recently Home Fire, which refracted Sophocles' Antigone into a compulsive contemporary tale of crossed family loyalties, and of course received the 2018 Women's Prize for Fiction. I've known both authors from around the time they were selected as two of Granter's best of young British novelists back in 2013, when I worked as an editor for the magazine, but this is the first time all three of us have been reunited, if not quite in the same room, then in the adjoining rooms of the internet. But turning back to the kernel of our conversation, China Room is a beautifully distilled epic in miniature, illuminating a transcendent tale of family inheritance fraught with suffering, desire, and a search for belonging. Set across three summers, 70 years apart, the novel centres on a farm in India where in 1929, a new bride, Mahir, finds herself attempting to identify her husband, one of three brothers, during darkened encounters in the eponymous China Room, so named because of the willow pattern plates which adorn the shelves. Then in the 1990s, her grandson, identified enigmatically as S, attempts to reckon with his past, travelling to the farm and the very room that was a site of subjugation and sanctuary. We hope you'll enjoy listening to our conversation. Hello and welcome, Sonny and Kamala. Hi, Ted. Hello, Ted. Hello, Sonny. Hi, Kamala. Can I start by asking where you're calling from today? Kamala, where are you? Um, I am in Los Angeles. And, you know, the time right now, it's it's the morning, which is a really lovely time of day, which I usually sleep through. So thank you for having me awake um, in the cool hours of an L.A. morning. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry we've, we've roused you from your L.A. lion, but thank you so much for being with us. And Sonny, where are you? I'm in Sheffield. Yes, yeah, so from L.A. to Sheffield, it's a... Uh... A lovely, mild, kind of August um, late afternoon. Wonderful. 
and I'm here in Hackney in London. Um, Sunny, I'd like to start by asking you about the genesis of this novel. There are hints, including a photograph of a woman cradling a baby on the final page, that the narrative draws on your own family history. Has this novel been building for you since babyhood? And how did you go about interweaving real lives into your fiction? Yeah, so certainly it's, I suppose one of the seeds of the novel was this, this family lore, this family story, which I'd been hearing from or taking note of since my teens that there was an ancestor of, an, an ancestor of mine, um, a great grandmother, who was one of four women and none of them knew which husband they were married to until, so the story goes, one year later when they saw which man was holding which baby. How this story's been embellished and exaggerated over the years, the stories tend to be um, in families, um, I don't know. But it was a story that was spoken of with a great deal of levity in my family, as if, as, if, as, as we so often tend to patronise you know, and people that lived long ago, even when it wasn't particularly long ago. Um, but it always just felt like quite a dark and painful kind of story to me. And it felt like it had a kind of a mythic kind of quality to it. This is this image of these three women in this, in my novel, these three women in this room. And that room still um, exists. It's still on the farm in India where my family, uh, where I still have a large family um, living. Um, so that was, I suppose, the key seed of the novel. And then it progressed from, from there. There were lots of questions about how I felt about um, fictionalizing a story of an ancestor you know it was it was like tricky for me to get my head around that but once I stopped seeing it as an imposition as me imposing my voice onto this ancestor of mine and, and I started seeing it more as an act of an act of love and a, a kind of an homage to this woman who lived once upon, lived once upon a time then I started seeing how the story or how I could certainly begin to try to tell a story or a version of of that of that history Kamala, I want to ask how this relates to the first stirrings of your fiction. Um, in Home Fire, I mentioned you you drew on Antigone. I'm just wondering what happens for you. What are the first intimations that you get in the writing process? Um, it does vary from novel to novel. Um, but it is interesting to, to hear... Some, and by the way, China Room just is one of the most extraordinary novels. And, you know... I just thought I should throw that in. Um, I'm filled with, with envy um, for right. Sunny's writing in there. Um, but, you know, Sunny's saying this, this question, when you're taking on someone else's story, of course, it's a different question when it's an actual person, it's an ancestor, it's someone who lived and didn't get to tell their own tale. Um, but any kind of story you're taking on, I think there's a certain, you know, your sort of first response very often is, the sense of the weight that it isn't entirely your own creation, that it belonged to someone else. Um, in my case, I was working with Antigone. There was no there was no worry of appropriation because I know that play's been around 2,000 years. It'll carry on forever. Um, and many people over the years have, have taken it on. But it became a different question of this is a play that is so well known, has been so often used as a source text. Um, what am I doing? You know, it wasn't so much what gives me the right, but what gives me the temerity um, 
to think that I can take this and not just end up with something that is um, a shadow of the original. Um, and so I had to convince myself that actually Antigone would be a very sort of bare part of it. Um, and I really start off thinking, well, I use it as a, as a sort of source, but I will go off from it in all kinds of ways because, of course, I'm telling a 21st century story of Britain um, and there'll be all kinds of things in this 2,000-year-old play that simply won't fit. And And the surprise for me, the more I went into the novel, was actually how much of that 2,000-year-old story absolutely did fit. Um, and it does sort of give you pause, but... But it was also very helpful because I was writing the story about, um, you know, a British boy who goes to join ISIS and the response of his family and also of the government. Um, and it felt it was, you know, so these were stories that were in the headline as I was writing them. And I think sometimes as a novelist, you can feel a little anxious about writing something as it is itself unfolding. Um, but because I was able to link it to something 2,000 years old, um, I thought, you know, this isn't just of the moment. This is a story that at its very base um, is a story of human relationships and humanity um, in a way that that doesn't change as the headlines change. Yes, in a sense, Antigone is a story that continues to repeat itself and that you've sort of brought it into that present moment. And Sunny, to come back to you, and you mentioned that there's this sort of almost mythic resonance about um, the initial dramatic setup with these three uh, women who are trying to identify their husbands. And you also, it's interesting that you, as you say, that we patronise um, our ancestors in a sense, we simplify their stories. But I'm mm. just, I'm interested to know um, more about your sense of that mythic structure, because the number three recurs in the novel in different ways. And I'm just wondering when you alighted upon that structure of three, uh, three women and their, and their, and their husbands, um, what is it about that mythic resonance? What does that lend to the writing process in the novel for you? Yeah. I mean, you're right. Threes and triples, um, very much ground kind of like the novel. So the three, brides, the three brothers, there's triangles all over the place as well. And the whole novel takes place across three summers, in fact, as well, which is um, important to how the novel works too. Um, I suppose that sense of something ancient is delivered by that kind of that mythic, like, that's, like, that's like that mythic kind of um, setup, the sense that this is a story that's old, as, as Gamala was saying, these are stories that they're not Sometimes it can be frustrating when stories are described as timely and you want to say, well, if it's timely, it's been timely for 2000 years. This idea of people wanting control over their personhood, control over their desires and have a right to actually feel desire and be able to act upon them. These are old and ancient wants and needs. But it was clear for me while I was writing that strand or that or I was initially I thought the novel was going to be entirely written in that historical mode. Um, then there came a point when the novel kind of fell apart or that element of the novel fell apart. And I kept asking myself, a bit like Gamla was saying, like, like why why do I need to tell this? Why do things be told in this way? What's it actually adding adding to anything? Um, 
and the urgency and the kind of the, the the vastity of the novel kind of went and then I set it aside and well I didn't set it aside I just stopped writing and I just sat with the novel over a period of just several months I still kept on turning up at the desk turning up at the pages waiting for kind of the novel to tell me what what was well where to where to take it I do think narrative is quite generous and when I am stuck I do just keep turning up for a few hours every day usually by the end of the day I might only have like a quite an elaborate geometric doodle on the down the side of the page but something is still happening in the mind while I'm while I'm doing that and then months passed and I realized that I needed to disrupt the story that actually what I was more interested in was the the dialectic between the past and the present similar to as, as Gamla was um, saying and that's when this this second strand of this of um the great grandson kind of developed and I realized I needed his lens to be able to actually properly see the for the historical narrative to properly come to focus actually and the historical the historical the historical narrative was never quite there until the great grandson entered the picture and then I saw how these two strands seemed to be like shaking hands across this divide of 70 years and then the novel then it did kind of start to take off much more um readily that character is so interesting, and I want to ask, um, as I mentioned, he, he's he's referred to in um, narrative as S, and you, you give us a sort of tantalising um, sense that there are there are some aspects of it's a somewhat autofictional part of the book, um, but you stop short of 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 owning it completely, as it were, and I'm just wondering what why did you want to keep some distance there? Was it that you wanted there to be um, a sort of productive ambiguity about that distance. Yeah, you're right. There are correspondences between the great grandson and and my own life. I guess I kept it just at the initial because I guess I'm not interested in confessions really. I don't really feel like owe anyone a confession, and I don't. I'm, I'm not interested in confessional ideas of of truth. It's, it's probably why I'm not particularly interested in memoirs as genre either. I find I find it quite difficult. I, I think you only I think you only really have copyright over your own life, really. So the idea of confessing and involving other real people is kind of slightly difficult for me to get my head around. But I am interested in dramatic truth and the, the the truth that comes out of drama and watching people in this space we call a novel interacting and struggling and trying to get on with their lives and the meaning that it's constructed out of that reader-writer meeting in the space of a novel. And so that's why, that's the main reason why I kept kept some distance between the, the narrator and the book and and me. And we can look for me in the narrator, but I think equally you could look for me in, you know, in, in any of the characters. I think the, that S at the beginning of the book is refracted by time, by memory and by language into all these other historical selves. I think... Now, I'm there in Radega as well, I think, as much as I'm in the in the in the narrator. So yeah, yeah, cons- kind of constructive ambiguity is a good way to put it, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm keen to ask Kamala if she's ever tempted to include a K in a sort of Kafkaesque nod. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but Kamala, one of the things that struck me about China Room was, as Sunny says, he's present in many of these characters, but it's such a closely observed novel, particularly when it comes to the female characters in this in this book. Um, from the, the, the central figure of, of Mahir, but also a character like Mai, who's so vividly drawn. I'm just wondering if that also struck you as a reader, and particularly um, 
as a, as many of your incredible, vivid and memorable female characters. I'm just wondering how that struck you as a reader of this book. It struck me that, you know, in 2021, it shouldn't be as surprising as it is or as unusual as it is to have a male writer write about women in the way Sunny does. I mean, obviously only Sunny can write as Sunny does, but um, the the fact that they are central um, and that he's so deeply invested in their emotional lives and that at no point do I think, oh, this is a man writing about a woman. Um, and it is strangely unusual. And of course, after the first few pages, you just forget it's a man writing about a woman and you're just in the story itself. But it, it is, when I said earlier that I'm envious of the writing, um, I meant because in the writing itself is quite spare in, in a lot of ways in as much as, you know, it's a, it's a short novel. Um, but within that spareness, there's such richness. Um, and how he's managed to create that duality, I think, is really quite um, extraordinary. I mean, the structure of the novel is also very smart in the way the two stories echo back and forth between each other. Um, but but the fact that we know those characters and we we feel their lives so deeply and, and Meher, not just Meher, but also um, there are, it's not a novel that just says, okay, here's a central female, but it's interested in the female experience and what it is to live in a world where you are the gender that is allowed less freedoms and liberty and power. Um, and yet you have your own kinds of power. And so you have Meher, but her mother-in-law, Mai, is completely fascinating, you know, in the way that she is, she, she clearly has suffered herself, and yet she then becomes an instrument of suffering for other women. Um, and not in any kind of cliched, crone-like way, but in a very, very deeply human way. And in the present storyline, we have S's aunt, who is, you know, just there at the periphery, you think, and, and yet so central as well. Okay. Oh, thank you, Carmela. <laughs> I'm just so moved that you said, said all that. Thank you. I, I, I think that's beautifully put. And I, I just, um, following on from that, just when I read Sonny's fiction, um, I'm often the parallels that I often draw are actually to, to even though this is an incredibly contemporary novel with lots of different intricacies to it, to um, to classic fiction that 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 is able to situate characters in that expansive way and not so much as representatives of one or other kind of person, but as full human beings. Um, Sunny, I want to ask you when you're writing. Um, is that something that you're ever conscious of, that you want to um, always sort of um, move away from characters that are in any way representative characters and just try to sort of uncover what it is about them that, that makes them that full human being? Certainly, I don't want my characters... I don't... I haven't as yet anywhere written allegories, so I don't... Yeah, I don't want my characters to be representative of any particular group or or situation I don't know um I think yeah I think when I was my, you know my first kind of love of reading came from those big immersive 19th century novels where it is so much you know invested in character and I suppose yeah, and characters and all their contradictoriness and all their complexity and I suppose a bit of that is something I've yeah, has been in my 
fiction to date, just trying to, and I suppose my novels are quite interested in psychology and interiority, which perhaps lends itself to this, to this questioning of character and what makes characters um, real. But I suppose it's there in, in, in the writing. I do, you know, often, I've often seen myself be described as quite a restrained writer, and I'm not quite sure. And it took, it took my editor to say to me that, you know, restraint, restraint is a positive quality, <laughs> which, which is, is, is true, of course. But I think I do withhold a lot. And I think I withhold a lot in my writing, you know, it's fairness because I, um, I want to create a space really where ideas and feelings are perceived rather than asserted. So it enables, I don't want to dictate, dictate how the book is read. I think that allows the reader to then, hopefully the reader then, rushes in with their own hopes. And I think that longing between knowing and tension with particularly with China Room is one of the ways in which hopefully the reader feels invested and the characters become kind of alive as a result of that. So yeah, it is important to me. It's important and, and it hopefully it's it's important in how the form of the book as well as the actual content of the book as well. And in terms of the form, you mentioned your geometric doodling in the margins sometimes in your mm -hmm. writing. I wondered if you conceived of this novel as having a shape, because actually it's really intricately structured the way that certain chapters, um, I, I believe that there are 40 sections um, that the uh, that the S character writes, which is the same um number is his age and I'm just curious that's that seems a very deliberate choice I'm just curious how you conceived of it in terms of its shape you know absolutely I, um perhaps not right at the outset but certainly through the the writing of it the shape of it became more and more clear to me so right so these two strands firstly they're both written in very different ways the story so one's in you know different tenses different um, points of view because they are two different stories and they needed telling differently but also because that question of authorship but who is actually telling this tale of of Meher this, this historical story which I think this connects to what we spoke about earlier about what you know what right does the person have to actually put words into the mouth of someone who really existed and who and who has no right of reply and one of the ways I tried to answer that question for myself was was making that question of author, authorship quite central to the form of the book so there are various sort of things for example the very constructiveness of that historical strand the 40 sections which points which hopefully it's like a faint question about running through the book in like, who is telling the story of Meher and what does that mean um so that was uh that was key the the, the actual shape of the book I can start conceiving as a spiral um mm. so so the initial sections are quite um, long, so I've got a long section in 29, then a long section in 99. But then as the story goes on, the, the intercutting gets quicker. And I did see it like as, as like a, the, the two strands calling around each other quicker and quicker. And then it ends in a kind of a, in a knot of the photograph. So the photograph, it does a lot of emotional work. It kind of hopefully pulls lots of strings taut inside the reader's mind. Um, but also formally, it's the point at which the two strands kind of just really knot together and become, in my in my head, they become one at that point. Yeah. That's so interesting about the spiral shape. I, I had an inkling that there was some shape in mind. But um, I just want to ask as well about this, um, just returning slightly to the question of the, the female characters in the book. And you mentioned the, um, the challenges and oppression that they felt. Um, 
it seems like one of the, the, the central questions that the novel explores, and Kamala articulated this really beautifully, is, um, is to do with uh, women and desire and their ability to, to own their desire or not, and the way in which that desire is mediated and um, sometimes subjugated. Um, was that something that you set out thinking about? Was that just something that emerged in the writing? It's, no, it emerged in, in the writing. I think it might have been there in my head as I started, but it didn't reveal itself to me fully until I was writing. As, as I think, as Carmen said earlier, almost like each novel kind of like gives rise to the tools and the things required to actually write it. Um, but it's important. So with, with Mai, for example, I think she has, you know, she has her own desires and everything, but she was never given the opportunity to actually own those um, and therefore, so she's very much internalised her misogyny and is lashing it out onto the other women um, that enter the house. The only way Mai feels able to actually exist in her world is if she starts taking on some of the tropes that she perceives as being the, the masculine tropes. But whereas for, for Meher, she's at a time when the, 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 the world outside of the farm, the politics outside of the farm is different to when, to when Mai was growing up. There's the Indian independence movement, ideas of self-rule, are very much in the air and there's you know there's obvious parallel between the political movement and self the the, the need that Meher feels for self or she makes that connection the personal and the political and so forth um so the fact that Meher had the opportunity to actually attempt to control it was it was an idea that she had in her head that she could something she could actually aim for and then in the contemporary strand it's kind of like it's, it's almost like completed by a character like Radhika who does take ownership of her wants and her desires and her future and absolutely takes control of her personhood um, in the way that neither Cuckoo or Meher or Mai could, were fully able to or, or were allowed to or permitted to. It's so interesting as well that um, thinking about the character of S and the way that you felt the, the need, I can see that to, in, in mediating these stories, to, to have some form of authorial presence in the narrative, to, to act as some kind of um, acknowledgement of your presence in the text. Um, yeah, that, yeah no, that, was, that was the only way I could actually make sense of how to, of how to write the story. I mean, it, to write a, a long historical narrative, um, I just couldn't quite work out, well, I, I needed that, I just, that that dialectic between the past and the present, and how the how these two strands echo and and mirror and link. And the fact that once I saw that both these characters not only are the two strands connected by various motifs and themes, but they are also two characters seeking connection or seeking home or seeking belonging, and they're both also suffering. They're suffering differently. I make no equivalence between Meher's and Essa's suffering, which is why the two stories needed to be written differently. But they are both being oppressed by society, albeit in different ways. And it does seem like one of the questions of the novel as well is how much solidarity can exist between people who are in different forms of oppression. You know, that the the three brides in the earlier part of the, the text, but also where can the, where they where can these characters forge solidarity, um, given all the vicissitudes that they're facing? And I think that Kamala, that seems to be a current that runs through some of your fiction as well that these that there are characters that have that capacity for um connection and building and and 
forging solidarity between each other. And there are, I can think of a couple of examples of that. But is that something that resonated with you? Very much. I mean, I think particularly um, the relationship of the three brides to each other um, in, in Sunny's book is such an interesting one. It's not, it's not straightforward and it gets more complicated um, as time gets on. But, but in some ways, that is where the real intimacy is. Um, for much of the novel is between these three women married to these brothers and they don't know um, who they're, they're married to and they actually spend far more time in each other's company and know each other better and I, I do think it's it's always really interesting this question of whether um, individuals see what is happening to them as just this personal wound that they are suffering and it's all about them or or when they're able to use that as a as a form of empathy um to other people in in similar situations or analogous situations i mean it's interesting in life as it is in fiction this question of whether pain is viewed as a solitary act or as part of something much larger i mean of course pain is very individual at one level but but that question of what are you going to do now with it um is I think an interesting one. You know, now you've you've experienced this suffering. What does what does that do to you and for you? And what do you do with it? Um, I think is something that 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 is has I think preoccupied a lot of writers um, and always will. It seems like in a sense, um, one of the things there's a there's a current of heroism I think running through. Um, certainly China Room and, and I think in, in many of your books in different ways a quiet sort of heroism which is about what you then do with the weight of these this suffering and I think that it what's um, really moving to me about China Room is that um, S is attempting to um, to borrow from Ian Forster to live in fragments no longer to to, to draw these different fragments together and to, to make something from them um, even though he is in a, in a, there's a sort of um, resignation and a melancholy to to his to to some of his what he writes, but I think that there was a there was a hopeful note to me in that. I'm not sure if that um, if that chimes with you, Sonny. Um, yeah, there's a hopeful note towards the end when he, I think the narrator's on the roof and he he looks at the big sky and he says he imagines a. A future where he's going to be okay and then immediately that's slightly undercut because I just think I didn't I didn't want it to be like he goes to India and he sort of like finds himself and he's everything's brilliant from then on in that's just not no <laughs> let's just not do that narrative no <laughs> um, but there <laughs> the is gap year narrative yeah <laughs> but this but this idea of suffering and trauma being handed down which I do I think it's something we've always intuited you know the the unexplained sadness of a parent a kind of like a room that's always seems freighted with attitude something that's lives on and it's interesting to me how actually science these days seems to be bearing that kind of that that handover out and you know apparently it's 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 the science of epigenetics and it shows it you know that if psycho psychological trauma if it's not resolved it does get it changes your genetic markers which is passed down and there's and you know and your subsequent generations are more prone to psychological trauma as well so this idea that trauma is handed on isn't is something that is being borne out but the interesting thing in those some of those studies is that it shows that if you can reckon with your trauma or your pain then there's much less chance of, of that pain being 
passed on. I think there's a line in the end of the in the book where the narrator says the underlying hurt um, does not go away and can only be paid attention to. And I think that's what it's trying to get at this, this idea, which might not be particularly fashionable, I don't know, but that we have to, you know, we have to um, learn to accept our pain, which doesn't, of course, mean that the pain is acceptable, but we have to actually somehow come to some kind of accommodation with it. I think that's what the novel at the end is kind of like. That's part of the, 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 the hopeful note it's perhaps trying to strike. That's a wonderful um, note to draw to a close on. Um, before we do, I just want to ask you what you've been reading at the moment and if there's anything you'd recommend to our listeners. And then we're going to hear a, a reading from Sunny to, to close the podcast. It's interesting because when I first read Sunny's novel, when it was in proof, um, I had just been reading or rereading Athia Hossein's Sunlight in a Broken Column because I was writing an introduction to it. It's, it's a book that was originally published some 60 years ago and, and Virago is just doing a, a reissue. Um, and it was so fascinating to read the two of them next to each other. I mean, I should, I should also throw in that Sunlight in a Broken Column is written by Athia Hossein, who was my great aunt. Um, oh. But it's, it's an extraordinary novel. And it's, again, it's, it's a woman in the years leading up to partition um, at a very different um, place in the social world um, to Sunny's characters. But there are these resonances. It's, it's women who are in this world that is changing and they want changed things for themselves. They want things that their, their aunts and grandmothers never imagined. And it's, it's beautifully observed in terms of sort of just, I mean, she has a very sharp satirical eye for society. It's so interested on, in the changes going on in, in India. And the central character, Leila, is this really amazing, smart, opinionated woman. Um, but also what's interesting, she wants new things. She wants a different kind of world, but she also recognizes that what is the world that is going is, is something that's being lost. Um, and that where you have gain, you also have sorrow and departure. Um, and I think those two things are, are handled so beautifully in there. And, and it's just been reissued, so I've been rereading it again because the new new version is just out. Wonderful. I read earlier in the summer, or I think it was in spring, um, I read um, A Passage North by Anuk Progressum, which has really stayed with me. Actually, it's a novel where about a character taking um, a train journey to the north of Sri Lanka, and it takes in um, you know, the, the politics and the, 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 the war, the aftermath of the war in that country. But what I really kind of um, loved about it was he's such a devoted noticer of, of feelings, of um, shifting internal landscapes of people, and he does it really deftly. And, um, and yeah, I thought it was, just, I thought it was a, um, a novel full of wonder, really, internal wonder. Great recommendations. Thank you so much. Um, Sunny and Kamala, we could talk for hours. Thank you so much. But um, perhaps we could end with a reading, Sunny, from, I think, from the opening of China Room. Yeah, absolutely. So this is just um, straight off the bat, so no context needed. Meher is not so obedient to 15-year-old that she won't try to uncover which of the three brothers is her husband. Already, the morning after the wedding, and despite nervous, trembling hands, 
She combines varying amounts of lemon, garlic, and spice in their side plates of sliced onions, and then attempts to, de to detect the particular odour on the man who visits later that same night, invisible to her in the dark. It proves inconclusive, the strongest smell by far her fear. So she tries again after overhearing one of the trio complaining about the calluses on his hands. The concentration is fierce when her husband's palm next strokes her naked arm. But then too, she isn't certain. Maybe all male hands feel so rough, so clumsily eager and dry. It is 1929. Summer is erupting and the brothers do not address her in one another's presence. Indeed, they barely speak to her at all. And she, it goes without saying, is expected to remain dutiful, veiled and silent like the other new brides. Spying from her window, she sees only the brother's likeness. Close in age, they share the same narrow build with unconvincing shoulders and grave eyes, serious faces that carry no slack, features that follow the same rules. The three are evenly bearded, the hair trimmed short and tight, and all day they wear loose turbans cut from the same saffron wrap. Most hours, the brothers will be out working the fields, playing, drinking, while she weaves and cooks and shovels and milks, until those evenings when Mai, their mother, says to her, raising a tea glass to grim lips, not to the china room tonight. This is the third time Mehrim has finished wa wash washing the pewter pots at the courtyard water pump, and rather than join the women, take herself to the windowless chamber at the back of the farm. On the bed, she holds her knees close, seeing no point in lying down straight away. Five days married, five nights since she'd first lain waiting in the pitch black, shuddering from arms to toes, hoping it wouldn't come to her and praying that there might be blood. The day before the wedding, Meha's mother had folded a tiny blade into her daughter's hand. Cut your thumb to be sure, she'd said. Meha hadn't done that. The tallow stick on its stony ledge has blown down to its crater, and in the obliterating dazzle of the darkness, she imagines she is underwater, in some, sub in some submerged world of sea goats and monsters. From across the courtyard, she hears the distant protesting rasps of a charpoy and the scuffle of leather slippers being towed on. Her stomach does a small anticipatory flip, and she lies down as the door opens and he moves to sit at her side. She dares a sidelong glance at, one, at what must surely be his naked back though it is impossible to make even a distinction between his hair and his cotton wrap, which you can hear him loosening. Undress, he says, not unkindly, but with the contingent kindness of a husband who knows he will be obeyed. She tries to trap his voice inside her head, to pass its deep grain, its surprising hoarseness. Was he the one who'd called for Mordal, who'd had her hurrying out to them earlier that day? He smells strongly of grass and sweat, and of fenugreek and taro, the evening meal. But beyond that, she can detect soap, and is glad that he thought to wash before coming to her tonight. He grips her upper arm with one hand. Calluses. Can she feel calluses? You're learning the life here, he says afterwards. Everyone is very kind. He gives a wry little snort, and she flicks her eyes towards the sound. Nothing. She can see nothing. Sunny and Kamala, thank you so much. That was such a rich and interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your insights. Um, it's such a pleasure almost being with you again. 
Um, thank you. Oh, that was great. Thanks, thanks, Ted. Thanks, Carmel. It's really lovely to see you both. It's really lovely to see you both and uh, to hear you both. Thank you, Ted. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Thank you for tuning in. You can find more about China Room by Sanjeev Sahota and Kamala Shamsi's books in the show notes. What did you think of today's conversation? You can find us on Vintage Books on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and share your thoughts. Until next time, keep reading boldly and thinking differently. Differently.